Hi there, and welcome to Gem Connection, a podcast that features stories celebrating jewelry and gemstones through cultural and geologic diversity, as well as the remarkable people and techniques that have impacted the trade since ancient times. I'm your host, Susan Thornton. This episode's special guest is artist and jewelry designer Paula Crevachet, also known as the Queen of Color. She's one of my favorite jewelry designers for a couple of reasons, beginning with the fact that she's an immensely curious person with a radiant passion for life that's represented in her work, and two, because she spent her career really getting involved with every facet of the jewelry trade and sharing her knowledge. Now she's a central figure in the trade as a judge, educator, designer, award winner, and visionary, as seen in her daring and astonishingly beautiful jewelry creations. Paula works in the noble metals and the finest gemstones. Some of her pieces may include several hundred pave-set gemstones. Her designs are informed by her curiosity for the natural world. Maybe a six-inch octopus or a flower that blooms once a year for only three days. Her botanical jewels are so illusionistic as to be living. The Flying Fish of Mandalay is one of my personal favorite crevice brooches, alluding to Rudyard Kipling's poem Mandalay, published in 1890. Paula's wit and influence as expressed through her jewelry rewards those who are keen observers, and I think it's significant that she creates only one-of-a-kind pieces. I only do one-of-a-kind of everything and never duplicate because I'm an artist. I am not a businesswoman in that way, where I want to mass produce. Money does not drive me one bit. Each jewel begins with her own hand drawing and painting. Paula does not use CAD, which is unusual, and to that point, Paula has turned down opportunities to mass produce her designs because she aims to elevate the role of the jewelry designer from an anonymous function to that of a fine artist. Several of Paula's jewels are on permanent display at prestigious American museums, including the National Gem Collection at the Smithsonian Institution, the Carnegie Museum, and the Gemological Institute of America, GIA. In fact, her jewelry is very much museum quality and the subject of solo museum exhibitions in North America, Europe, and Asia, and we're going to be talking about some of those shows. But first I want to talk about Paula's fascinating background. Her father was a scientist and earned two PhDs in both chemical and mechanical engineering and held multiple patents, receiving his first patent in his 20s. Her mother was also an artist, a poet, a singer, writer, and Paula attributes her own joie de vivre to her mother. And when I say joie de vivre, especially as it relates to Paula, what I really mean is that she truly lives in joy as a philosophy of life. Paula earned her master's degree at the age of 22, graduating with honors in painting and sculpture from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She moved to New York to launch her career and was soon invited for a one-person show at the prestigious Mary Boone Gallery. But her college beau from grad school, the late George Crevachet, a Ph.D. candidate in Asian studies, began wooing her to be his wife. Paula abandoned her New York art show, married George, and they spent those next four years living in India in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. Paula was studying with His Holiness the Dalai Lama's teachers, while George worked on his thesis. They spent a total of 15 years in Asia on what she affectionately calls the Magical Mystery Tour, which influences her work to this day and marks the beginning of her transition into jewelry design. Of course, I, after living about 15 years collectively in my, of my life in Southeast Asia, from all over the uh, Southeast Asia area, mm -hmm. India, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Hong Kong, you know, all of it. It's, it's really so much a part of my DNA. 
and their aesthetic is so refined yeah. and elegant and historic, which I also love very much about that, Susan. One look at Paula's jewelry, and you really get it. She is the queen of color, and she's been dubbed so by the jewelry trade. I became dubbed the queen of color from the industry, and I've been in the industry for 30-something years. And about year two or three, these editors of the top trade magazines in our industry were eating in a restaurant, and they were talking all about me. And we run right into each other. As they're coming out, I'm going in. And they said, your ears must have been burning. And I said, why? And they said, <laughs> we've just dubbed you the queen of color. There's nobody that does color like Crevachet. Mm. And I love that, mm -hmm. hearing yeah. that. And it was much later on, I was reading in a Scientific American magazine, an article about, about technochromats. And I realized I was reading about myself and that you could be tested. So I literally have been gifted by nature with these eyes that can see color within color within color, so many more colors than most human beings can. And as I understand it, only women have this quality. To explain technochromacy, also referred to as tetrachromacy, tetra is the, the Greek prefix for four, the number four, to explain that further is to talk about the rods and cones behind the eyes. Rods and cones are photoreceptors. Rods allow for peripheral vision and seeing in low light, while cones are related to color and seeing in daylight. So tetrachromats, like Paula, have four cone types and can see 10 million different colors, whereas most people have three cones and can see one million different colors. And I think this is such an amazing gift for an artist and a jeweler, and it's no wonder she paints with light and the light of the minerals she's working with, and she shared a secret of using the refractive index, or RI, of gemstones as a design tool. I really literally work with the light of the earth. I'm known as the queen of color, and what I'm doing is I'm working with, with the transmitted light, but I'm, I'm composing it with, with the, the refractive indices so that that look beautiful. It's aesthetic, but it's also scientific because I'm wanting to have a symphony of light coming yeah. back to the human eye. And I used to call them gemological clues. And I, I had them a secret. So and I was wondering if at if anyone would discover what I was doing and, and <laughs> connect the dots. And then I thought, why am I keeping this secret? But it was just my little secret story. I've been doing it since I was 25. I think it's and fascinating I, that you work with refractive indexes. That's something that people don't think about at all. Some people don't even know GIA has been filming me every year for many years. And they did a long two or three hour uh, film on me and installed me into their archives. Uh, I think I'm no, I was number four or five at the time mm. because they want to document how I work uh, because they, they've interviewed me so many times and when they come to see it, people come to see me, I, I teach them what I'm doing. Uh, and so they use it. FIT uses Crevachet. A lot of the major uh, institutes use Crevachet as an example because mm -hmm. I get a lot of their students uh, coming to me and writing to me and they say they say if you want to if you want to study jewelry design you need to study the art of Crevachet. 
Now, I want to talk about refractive index in a bit more detail because I think it's really interesting that Paula works in this way, and also to briefly mention what it means gemologically. The refractive index, or RI, is an optical property of light bending as it travels through a gemstone similar to how a straw in a glass of water will look bent. The light hits the gemstone, and because it's more dense than air, it slows down, and the path of that light changes into an angle in the gemstone. The RI is a measurement of how fast that light passes through the gem, and it's expressed as a ratio as compared to passing through air. Air has an RI of 1. Generally speaking, gemstones with a high refractive index have a high angle of light passing through it and an increased brilliance. Brilliance has to do with how light bends in the gem, separating the light into spectral colors. But it's also something that can be seen by observing how bright the gemstone is, and that has to do with how well the gemstone is cut, which is another key factor in describing brilliance. And, of course, Paula considers the perceptual properties of gemstones as well, as seen in her immortalized animals. I love the word translation because, like the wolves, to make them look furry, um, I, used, uh, I used several different colors of both diamond and labradorite for the mm -hmm. gray, faceted labradorite. And there is a softness to it, so they, it really, the, it's the play of light as well as how I've sculpted the metal it looks like fur. It yeah. has this this soft texture. And I'm working on a white owl right now, as well as a beautiful white swan. And I'm using both faceted moonstones as well as diamonds to get the softness of the fur. Because the owl, you, you know how soft that feather is and how kind of fluffy. So it, it's the moonstone that has that kind of glow that's so soft. Now I want to get into her fascinating museum exhibitions. Without question, Paula has a very unique visual aesthetic and conceptual depth to her work, and museums all over the world acknowledge that. These museum exhibitions have taken her audience, including her international collectors and the prominent institutions who purchase her work, to greater heights. The foundation of each work critically examines a different subject of exploration and is deeply rooted in her core concern of connecting nature, art, and science. Paired with each show are books she and her partner Martin, as well as other contributors, have collaborated on, and I believe those books are still available. I'm going to be providing Paula's website and Instagram at the end of the podcast. In Paula's first major museum show, she worked to elevate the talents of American carvers by including their work alongside her own. The first major museum show I already edited and presented to the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. And it was called Voices of the Earth. It, I asked my world-class American carvers to carve three to five pieces that told their special voice, their gift in the carving, because they exploded on the scene and started taking all the awards internationally, and we had not had a tradition like China or like Germany. These carvers were carving out of Prisicola, a lot of minerals found in our country, and they were gorgeous, off the chart, never seen before. Mm. So I got that show for us to put us in a time capsule that these carvers were so exciting to me that I built an entire collection around it and I got a, a, I got a gem and mineral museum 
of such caliber to host it. And then GIA wanted it and started to tour. That was my first baby show. Her first solo show was a few years later, also at the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, and entitled Garden of Light, featuring her translations of the floral and animal kingdom into the mineral kingdom, into her fine jewels. Then I did another exhibition, very 75 pieces, some years later, at the Carnegie again, called Garden of Light. And it was all about the mineral kingdom, the floral kingdom and the animal kingdom and how I translate those from the floral to the mineral and from the animal to the mineral, as you well know, because you've seen my pieces. So, but I also, I, it was an educational show. They just loved it. And they let me curate the whole thing, but they did an excellent job of installation. Um, because we had themes like what is green or an opal collection. My floral collection, I think there was about seven or 10 of my exquisite flowers. Mm -hmm. Well, one that the GII bought and, it, and it's permanently installed in its uh, New York facility on the eighth floor. When you come off the elevator for the education, it is right there in a vitrine that will never open. It will never leave there. And it was a huge eye baloney pearl for the bulbous body of this incredible lady slipper. I love ladies. I've seen it. It is absolutely stunning. So that, imagine all these themes of pollinators, of flowers, meaning that I create spiders, all these different things, but all these themes to educate someone that might not know about opals, but there'd be 12 types of opals and gorgeous jewels, things like that. Well, I said to the committee when I was having the meeting and I had done a baby diagram of where everything should go, you know, in miniature at a conference table. I said, um, I need to talk to etymology. I need the exact pollinators for my flowers. I hear you have several million bugs. I need the bugs. Paula used real bugs, the exact pollinator bug for the flower she was exhibiting as a jewel. We're, we're exhibited with them. And they were real in the nature, and then the mineral kingdom had translated the flower. This is what you can learn from a conversation with Paula about bees and non-bee pollinators of flowers, including beetles, ants, butterflies, moths, and, and more, so much more. I admire that Paula has this really layered, multidimensional, interconnected way of thinking that is truly characteristic to her jewelry and her museum exhibitions. Paula's next museum show was called Illuminations Earth to Jewel and took place at the 400-year-old Le Musée de Mineralogie in Paris. Illuminations Earth to Jewel, and that took place in Paris at the Musée de Mineralogie in Mines Paris Tech, the most exquisite several hundred-year-old mansion of the former Duchess of Vendôme, right among the garden. This garden is so world-class. And what that was about, they invited me. They, the Didier, the, uh, they, there's, a, there's a woman in my life it, that's French that lives in America, and she made an introduction. And so I met with Didier and Jean-Claude, and I was telling them my concept for the exhibition and meeting and seeing the facility. And I said, I want to have illumination earth to jewel. 
I want to make the jewels and, and, and I will send you them. And then we're going to pair with your, this is a 400 plus year old museum that mm -hmm. their goal was to collect every new mineral around the world that they possibly have been doing it for centuries. So we had that meeting and DDA literally leapt, leapt in the air. The French are very expensive, you know. <laughs> so he was so happy because they've been trying to figure out how to marry their mineral, mineral museum with jewelry and fashion because it's all connected. And so mm -hmm. it, that was a gift from heaven. And the opening was gorgeous. Something was more in gold. Uh, they would pair maybe eight or nine gold mineral specimens from all over the world, so you could even see trace elements and coloration differences from where they, they were mined. Again, educational, mm -hmm. and so that was so that was so popular. They asked if they could extend it by several months. I want to emphasize Paula's point about having multiple gold specimens exhibited alongside her jewelry, because although pure gold nuggets are found, more often gold is found mixed with other elements, mainly silver or copper or both. When mixed with a percentage of silver, the natural alloy is called electrum, and it looks green. Electrum is a very well-known natural alloy and was used in early Greek coins dating from the 7th century BC. Now, if there's more copper in the gold, then it looks red. So natural gold nuggets with different mixtures will have different colors. And in fact, even gold from the same deposit can vary in color. Paula's third solo show was at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County and was called Art of the Jewel, the Crevice Collection, exploring the relationship of mineral to gem to jewel. Right at Tucson, you know, our big gem and mineral shows in Tucson, that year, it hadn't even come down yet, well, I was behind my booth and four people came up to me that I knew from L.A. County Museum of Natural History, mm -hmm. one of the greatest museums for minerals in our country and everything else. It's just a fabulous, it's just one of my favorite museums. Mm -hmm. And they said, um, Morgan said, the female, she said, uh, well, Paula, you can have a show anytime you want at LA County. I'm like, really? <laughs> she goes, well, isn't that something that interests you? I said, yes, of course. She said, well, we thought so. So we want to make an appointment with you. So uh -huh. that's how they, fell into my lap. And I think it's because the French had, had uh, some of the French people they knew had said, look, this is what we did. And the book mm -hmm. had come out for the show and they seen that Illuminations are to Jewel. But then what that what happened was when they came, I, I was showing them my big showcase and I said, well, you can see I have many themes. I have botanicals. I have creatures and animals. I have um, I have everything. What would you like me to focus on? And the curator opened his hands like, it's up to you. And I'm like, it's up to me. I can do whatever I want. He said, of course. <laughs> well, I was so delighted that I went right to work. Upon entering the show, visitors were treated with Paula's jewelry featuring only Southern California tourmaline, beside which the museum displayed their Southern California mineral collection. You walked in and the first huge showcase strategically placed to announce the glory that the, the visitors would behold was a showcase of gorgeous jewels with only Southern California tourmaline in all of them. Mm -hmm. Because my late George 
had was so brilliant with all of his uh, genius that he was put in charge of processing three or four years of our famous Stuart lithium ion tourmalines that were the Empress Dowager were shipping away in tonnage the last and they revere tourmaline and so it's a very famous mine. Paula brings up a really interesting historical connection. Through a deal brokered by Tiffany and Company, the last Empress Dowager of China and her imperial government of the Xin Dynasty, spelled Q-I-N-G, imported more than 120 tons of pink tourmaline from San Diego County. The gemstone was mostly used for carving. In fact, the Empress Dowager was entombed with her head on a California pink tourmaline pillow. The California show featured Paula's floral and botanical jewels, her terrific sea creatures, which I just love, and included an emphasis on gemstone mine locations. Paula works in these types of specifics. Mines matter. Location matters to her because of her interest in mineralogy and geology and because she's dear friends with many gemstone miners and dealers. Paula's traveled the globe and has been to the mines in Asia and Africa. She's traveled throughout Montana for their sapphires and uses many gemstones found in this country. Opal from Idaho and Nevada, Danburite from Connecticut and New Hampshire, Oregon Sunstone, North Carolina Emeralds, Red Barrel, also called Bixbite, from Utah, Turquoise from around the Southwest, and of course Tourmaline from Maine and California. Here's Paula with more on that and her California show. My locations, which interest me so much, and I've been working on those for seven to ten years, uh, but they include all Montana sapphire mine locations, uh, Southern California, I'm expanding into that, some new mines are opening up, and I've been offered really the, the mother load, and it was just punctuated with such world-class and rare stones to, to add into their collection and minerals like in my one in Paris because they love that because they're a mineral museum. So that was a great success. I mean, it was one of the best turnouts at the opening they had ever seen. They looked at me and said, wow, you know, so it, <laughs> I think you hit a nerve with your combinations of things and you work in beauty too. And that's the one thing you're not mentioning. <laughs> you're so right that you're always so correct. You are, you're, you listen well and you understand beauty, you understand art and jewelry, you have such depth of knowledge. Um, and I always say beauty is an elixir. It is the elixir. Postponed to next year because of COVID-19 is Paula's next solo show at the Perot Museum of Nature and Science in Dallas. It's called The Shape of Matter. Right now, I'm working on, it got postponed in COVID, but the Perot Museum was at the opening of the LA County Museum mm. of Crevice And she said to me before she left the luncheon the next day, Paula, when you're ready for Perot, Perot's ready for you. Mm. I said, really? <laughs> I said, I've got an idea that I've been wanting. I'm, I'm just developing it now. She said, let's talk after you, you get back home. So one morning, this is the artist mind. I know you will understand it. Um, artists have visions and they have everything flooding in at once and they can see everything but they have to write it down because it's flashing in so quickly it's what the way we're wired or when mm -hmm. we process the information mm -hmm. and many artists are the same so i think most are have that and i definitely have that and i get up early and i'm having my coffee in my kitchen and because martin uh sleeps 
later typically. And I have my best clarity in the morning. And all of a sudden, I'm like, that's it. I'm going to do an exhibition based on the seven crystal systems that everything on earth is made of only seven systems, as we know today. We had Euclid come in with the geometry. We had all kinds of science building, and we, we now have so much more technology. And I said, I'm going to call it the shape of matter mm. through the artist's eye. And so that's the show that I'd already been working on when, when um, the curator for the Perot approached me. And I don't know if this is important, but I just want to mention that you know, as soon as Martin got up and I was telling him, he was clapping because he just loved the idea. The phone rings and it's a major mineral dealer. I said, how, how, how nice to hear from you. Let me tell you what I'm just telling Martin. And he said, and he lives in Texas. And he said, well, could we talk about it over a bottle of wine tonight? And I said, I thought you said you were in Texas. He said, I am, but I'll fly in for this. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, that's the way my life runs. It really I is. Very, it. Yeah. But, it, but it was so great. And um, so what that meant was we had to orchestrate minerals and gems that I can work with that fit within each system. And some of those seven systems, they're very few. Mm -hmm. And some, they're huge. It's interesting. That's very true. And I just want to list the seven crystal systems along with an example of each to fill that information in. Starting with trigonal, it's a huge category with quartz, agates, ruby, sapphire are also trigonal. Orthorhombic examples of that are peridot, tanzanite, triclinic, relatively small crystal system with turquoise, labradorite, sunstone. Monoclinic includes malachite, jadeite. Next is the cubic with diamond, all garnets, spinel. Hexagonal consists of all the barrels, emerald, aquamarine, heliodor, morganite, bixbite. And finally, tetragonal includes zircon, not to be confused with cubic zirconia, which is man-made. So the crystal system is a classification for how the atoms, ions, and molecules are arranged. And they're defined by the relationship of three key things. How many axes it has, the length of each axis, and the angles at which the axes intersect. To round things out, Paula will also be exhibiting her collection with amorphous gems. Amorphous gems don't have a crystal structure. They include uh, opal, amber, jet is another one. As part of Paula's ongoing commitment to animal conservation, she's created a jewelry collection of immortalized and endangered species. She has a passion to record animals, the beauty of which belies her underlying concern and support for them. And good news, she's expanding on this body of work. I've even had women from the Audubon Society, and uh, I'm thinking to do North American songbirds. Mm. as maybe a, a, a theme for them to help raise money. Mm -hmm. So it's just expanding, and it yeah. gives me so much pleasure. And speaking of birds, I first met Paula and her partner, Martin Bell, several years ago in Santa Fe, New Mexico, under a tower of swains and hawks migrating to Patagonia for the winter. Over tea, I learned that Martin was born into a brilliant entrepreneurial family business, and one I was very familiar with. 
real grand jewelry supply. He was in charge of creating the gemstone supply chain and an integral part of growing the business globally. When Martin and Paula came together as a couple, he carved new pathways and widened others for the Crevichet collection, and he's no doubt been influential to Paula's work. To say that Paula is an artist or a jeweler is too imprecise. She upends the conventions of design to create tightly focused, one-of-a-kind pieces that intersect with mythology, mineralogy, the natural world, and translates the beauty of all those things into fine jewelry. While Paula has a very committed and talented team and workshop, Paula Crevichet is what makes Crevichet jewelry more than just a jewel. And I hope that after this podcast that makes sense, because while she's doing what she's doing, she's enriching our broader culture in the process. Paula's work, all of it, including her lectures, books, her infectious positive energy, and incredible curiosity, has made an indelible connection to nature, art, and science. I hope you'll visit Paula's website, which is crevichet.com, and follow her on Instagram at crevichet. She has an amazing account, of course, featuring her jewelry with beautiful photography, and it's really informative, too. A special thanks to Paula for a really fun Zoom call, and thanks to you all for tuning in. Look forward to seeing you at Paula's show at the Perot next year. Be well, and stay tuned for more episodes of Gem Connection.